Well, I want to welcome everyone to our service this morning, those in our celebration service, those that are worshiping over in the summit worship, all those who are joining us uh, on video, online, and on television, welcome to our service today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And before we just dive into the scripture passage this morning, I want to say something about what you see behind me. Uh, This is not our choir replacement. (laughs) This is Vacation Bible School. I believe that Vacation Bible School is one of the important, one of the most important things our church ever does. And I think when we're standing in the halls of heaven one day and we're looking back on the kingdom impact that our church has had, I think top of the list will be all the years of Vacation Bible School. All the volunteers, all the hard work, and the thousands of children who have been through the program. This next week is Vacation Bible School. I hope you will pray. But I want to issue a specific challenge to pray. Uh, The Bible talks about fasting and praying. And I don't know if that's something that uh, you have done very often, uh, but it's something that is encouraged and commanded in Scripture And I believe that there are special times when we should fast and pray. Fasting is, in the Bible, uh, simply doing without food for a period of time and devoting that time to prayer. So here's my ask as your pastor. Will you take one day, just one day over this next week, and if your health allows, if it doesn't, then it doesn't, but if your health allows, will you fast and pray one day for Vacation Bible School? Here's how you would do it. Have dinner one night, maybe a little extra, if you will, and then don't eat again until the next evening. Now, the meal times, the times you would have spent eating, spend those times praying for Vacation Bible School. And then all the times that your stomach grumbles during those 24 hours, use that as a reminder, just a voice of prayer for our Vacation Bible School. And then one more thing, you pick your day, And then let's let Melanie, our children's minister, know that on that day, you're fasting and praying. What an encouragement it would be to her if she got a bunch of emails every morning saying these three people or these 25 people today are fasting and praying. So our email is easy to remember, melanie at fbcnac.org. It's not going to be on the screen. I didn't think about it in time to tell our video people, but you can remember that. Melanie at fbcnac.org, and on the day you decide to fast and pray, just send her a note and let her know, and I think that'll be an encouragement to her. Well, our series is from the resurrection to the return of Christ, and we've been doing this ever since Easter. Really, we started with a prequel sermon the Sunday before Easter, and we've been focusing well, on just what the title says, from the resurrection all the way to the return of Christ. We started on Resurrection Day, and we looked into the question in Revelation chapter 5, which I contend is the most important question that's ever been asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and to execute its plan? And we saw that no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And I won't repeat that sermon, but then out steps Jesus in the halls of heaven, and he is found to be worthy because he is the lamb who was slain, and he is the lion who will rule. 
And so we started there, and we have been working then from the resurrection all the way to the return of Christ. Today, we come to the return of Christ. This is the pinnacle of all of history. This is what we look forward to. This, there's no greater glorious day than the return of Christ, and today we'll focus on that. It'll take us, if the Lord allows, three Sundays to fully unpack the return of Christ and all that goes with it and follows it. This will be Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, but we'll begin today with the return of Christ. This is, I want to say it again, the most climatic day in history. I wonder if you have enjoyed worshiping the Lord through this special song that Grant, our summit pastor, uh, has written for us to help us in this series. He wrote it just for this series, the song, Resurrection to the Return. And we've sung it in both worship services, I think, multiple times It's the second stanza of that song that really goes with the message I want to preach today and the point that I want to make. Let me read it to you. The power that made him rise, conquering the grave, is the victory in life until the return of Christ. Between the resurrection and the return, the power of Christ sustains us. And that's what we'll learn about today. The chorus of the song. From the resurrection to the return of Christ, we'll sing your praises for you saved our lives. You defeated sin and you conquered the grave. The victory is in the power of your name from the resurrection to the return of Christ. Now we look back to the resurrection and we celebrate that and we should. And we look forward to the return of Christ with great anticipation and we should. But now we live from the resurrection to the return of Christ We live in that in-between time. And that in-between time, between the resurrection and the return, this is a perilous time. This is a time where there's evil. This is a time where there is distress, where there's hardship, where there's calamity, where there are wicked people that affect all of our lives. We live in the in-between. In-between the resurrection and the return of Christ. In the last month, just even from a United States perspective, this has been a time of adversity. Not only are we stumbling out of the worst pandemic in a hundred years, facing fears of a possible world war starting in the West from the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, facing the possibility of another world war beginning in the East with the increasing tensions between China and Taiwan, Uh, We're also facing what appears to be a worsening financial downturn that's affecting everybody. And then the gun violence over the last 30 days, it's just been staggering. Just a few days ago, a grandfather and his grandsons, uh, closely connected to some people in our church, were, were gunned down not very far from here. Four days ago, a man walked into a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, gunned down four people. Ten days before that, a young man entered an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, killing 19 little children who were anticipating being free for the summer, two teachers. 
Three weeks ago, a deranged man who wanted to kill black people drove to Buffalo, New York, shot and killed 10, wounded many others. And these are just the, just the mass shootings that come to mind. In the last 30 days, there have been 63 mass shootings in the United States. The in-between time is a difficult time. The in-between time is a time of evil. And it causes us to ask some important questions. Questions like, why is there so much evil in the in-between time? What is our world coming to in this in-between time? And how do Christians live in this crumbling world? Let me take those questions one at a time just briefly. Why is there so much evil in this in-between time? We have to understand that Satan is doing all that he can do to destroy life. And then sin has consequences all its own. And those are increasing on both fronts in this in-between time. And they will continue to. And we see evidence of that in the book of Revelation. The second question, what is the world coming to? It's interesting that a century ago, just a century ago, most people believed that history was progressing inexorably towards some sort of man-made utopia. Uh, we were coming out of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, there was so much scientific discovery. There was an increasing pace of social reform. And people thought that the world is going to be perfect in a few years. But today, two world wars later, innumerable regional wars later, with countless acts of terrorism and senseless violence, with a near complete collapse of moral values, nobody thinks we're moving toward utopia now. What is the world coming to? Well, we've learned as we've studied the book of Revelation that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And then the third question, how do Christians live in this crumbling world? That's what I want us to focus our time on today. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. Uh, one of the things that I hope you've learned as we've studied this book over these last several weeks is the book of Revelation is not so much a code book uh, to decipher some uh, secret timeline. And I know that's how a lot of people approach it. And, 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 and that's okay. And there's some of that here. But the book of Revelation is, is written for us. It, it's written for all the Christians that live in the in-between time. It's, it's written for Christians that are between the resurrection and the return of Christ to tell them in this day of increasing evil, with senseless violence, with questions that we just can't answer. It's, it's provided for us so that we'll know how to live in this in-between, in this in-between time. So how do, we, how do we live in this in-between time? Well, the short answer is we look to the book of Revelation and we allow it to give us confidence in the ultimate victory of Christ. Christ wins. And that'll be the whole focus these next few weeks as we wrap up this book. Christ wins. He'll be on the throne. And so we take comfort today in that future truth, that future reality that's what the book of Revelation is about. But let me give you a little longer answer to the question, how do we live in this in-between in, in in time? It's the same answer, but, but let, me, let me give it to you with some scripture passages. I want to show you on the screen Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We're, we'll get to Revelation 19 in a moment, but look at this verse with me. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, 
For the joy that lay before him, notice that phrase, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Jesus suffered, right? Jesus endured some difficulty, some calamity, some evil, terrible evil, and he was nailed to a cross, and he endured all of that. How did Jesus endure? Well, this verse tells us exactly how Jesus endured. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus looked forward through history and he looked into some future time when he would be seated at the right hand of the Father and all of his children would be there worshiping him and they would be rejoicing together. That is the joy that was set before him. And, it's, and the Bible says that he endured the calamity. He endured the evil because he focused on the joy that was set before him. How do we endure these evil days? When we turn on the television and it's just filled with evil. When with phone call, we, the phone rings and we're just, we're just scared of what evil we're going to learn. How do we live in these in-between days? We do what Jesus did. We, we embrace the message of revelation. We look forward to the day and we let that day give us encouragement for endurance in this day. In Revelation 19, we're going to see two things. There's a war and there's a wedding. And this is the end, or at least the beginning of the end. And the war and the wedding will resolve all things The war and the wedding will determine the destiny of all people. This is the end. The war and the wedding. And in the in-between times, we gain strength when we look to the war and the wedding that will end all time and put us before the throne of God. So I want us to look together right here at, uh, at Revelation 19. Before we... One more note before we read the passage. I promise we'll get there. I want to say a word about chronology because uh, that's, that's what everybody's questions are about uh, when, um, uh, when the message concludes each week. It's hard to put the, the events of the last few chapters of the book of Revelation in some sort of chronological order. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult. And it's difficult to have any certainty with that. For instance, we're going to read about a war in the last half of chapter 19, but the war we read about here is the same war, according to most scholars, that we read about back in chapter 14 and also in chapter 16. So when we get to these last chapters, it's almost as if the Lord is opening up windows of time and describing things from different perspectives that may all fit together on the same timeline. It's hard, to, it's hard to put this in chronological order, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so I believe that the events of Revelation 19 happen at the end of the tribulation. And if you don't know what these words mean, that's okay. But I believe that the events of chapter 19 happen at the end of the tribulation, but before the thousand-year reign of Christ. We'll talk more about that rain next week. But these events, the war and the wedding, happen right between uh, the tribulation and the millennium that people uh, refer to. One other just chronological note, 
In chapter 19, the wedding comes first and the war comes second. I want to look at the war first, and there are a few reasons for that. Uh, One is, uh, it does chronologically come first, so we'll look at the war, and then we'll look at the wedding. Let's begin. There will be a great war. On this climatic day, there will be a great war. Let's start reading in chapter 19, verse 11. He says, and I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. And he judges and makes war with justice. Who is this riding the white horse? This is Jesus. This is the return of Christ. Verse 12, his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is, as I said, the return of Christ. You know, Christ came the first time in Bethlehem. Christ came in meekness and humility with the purpose to save the world. But when Christ comes again, it'll be very different. Christ will come in power and glory with the purpose of bringing final judgment on all of those who who rebel. And we see that right here in these verses I don't want to take the time to go through every, every one of those, but let me draw out two things in these verses that, that I think help us to understand the, the whole passage. Uh, the first phrase is uh, there in verse 13, he wore a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? Generally, when we see the word blood here, book of Revelation associated with Christ, we're thinking of the blood of the lamb shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is not that blood. This is not the blood of Christ. This is not the blood of the lamb. This is the blood of the adversaries. Listen, Christ does not return to offer salvation, but Christ returns to bring judgment. You know, we often think of Christ and the love of Christ and his tender compassion, his selfless sacrifice, and we should think of those things. But we also should recognize that Jesus is the holy, righteous, just judge. And he comes here not offering peace, but he comes here bringing the wrath of God. The blood that he has soaked in is not the blood that he has shed, but it is the blood that his adversaries will shed when he brings the judgment of God. This is something oftentimes we don't preach about as much as we should. I'm, I'm afraid I don't preach about this as much as, much as I should. Sure, Jesus is meek and mild and wants to save us all, but there will be a day when it will be one day too late and Jesus will come in nothing but judgment. The anger of God against sin is real. And God's anger against people who embrace sin and who reject Christ is real. And the blood that Jesus is coated in here is not the blood of the lamb, but it's the blood of the adversaries of God. We must turn from our sins. We must repent and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that that's a harsh 
kind of preaching to hear, but that's the truth. And that's the truth of this great war and of this great book. Jesus will come to avenge the justice of the Father. Let me read this in first, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a, there's a passage that talks of this same thing. And let me just read it. It's short, verse 7. It says, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious streets. What does Jesus say that we should do? Matthew 10, 28, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body but rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is love, and he has compassion, but Jesus is also the bearer of the wrath of the anger of God, fierce anger of God to those who will not repent. The robe dipped in blood. There's another phrase here I want you to see, and that's the wine press of the fierce anger of God. You see that in verse 15. Can I just be honest with you a moment, church? I wanted to skip this image. Uh, if you try to preach through the entire book of Revelation in 10 weeks, you've got to skip a lot of stuff. We can't cover everything. We'd be here a year and a half. Um, and I really thought, wine press, that'd be a good thing to skip. Uh, because it's hard to say and it's hard to listen to. But the Lord doesn't need me to clean up his image, right? The Lord wants us to know the truth the pleasant truth and the hard truth, and this is hard truth. What is he talking about when he talks about the wine press of the fierce anger of God? It's a symbol, it's a picture, and we're not in a time where there are wine presses the same way, but I think we can get the mental image. In ancient times, they would, they would have a big vat, big enough to put people in, and they would take the grapes, the fresh grapes, and they would put them in the vat, and this always seemed to me like something that would be fun to do, at least in the beginning. People then would climb in there barefooted and uh, they'd start stomping the grapes. Wouldn't that be fun for a while? And they're just stomping around and stomping and this is how they would press the grapes. Now, moms are thinking, thinking all the same thing. What is it? That would make a mess, right? And it did made a mess on the person, it made a mess, it splattered everywhere. Why would he say the wine press of, uh, of the fierce anger of God? He's, it's a picture of God's wrath once and for all delivered on rebellious man and it'll be like a person stomping in a wine press. It'll be so violent and so final and so destructive God loves us, but God hates sin. And God offers his forgiveness, but one day God will issue his justice. We read about this uh, back in Revelation 14. I want to just read these verses to you quickly. Revelation 14, 18, talking about this same thing. It says, yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. He says, gather the grapes because it's harvest time. Church, 
It's harvest time. And it says in verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. See, there's no confusion here what this is talking about. The winepress of God's wrath. And then it says, then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridle. A lot of blood. For 180 miles. We call this the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon comes from the word Megiddo. Uh, a month from now, I'm going to be in Megiddo. I'm going to be in that valley with some people from our church and we'll stand there and we'll ponder what's pictured here, blood just flowing through the valley. We have to understand that while God is love and God offers forgiveness, that one day God will issue his wrath. God's judgment is real, violent, and fierce. One more thing I want you to see about the battle before we wrap this, uh, wrap this up and get to a little happier news. Uh, the last verse in chapter 19, verse 21 says, the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds ate their fill of the flesh. The, the sword came out of the mouth of Christ. What, is, what, what does that mean? It means that this is... Uh, This battle, the weapon of this battle is simply the word of God. This is not a battle in some traditional sense. There's not, and and, and I think people get this mixed up when they're commentating on the the book of Revelation. There's not going to be any sort of back and forth. There's not some long battle strategy where you're trying to flank the enemy. There's no struggle. There are no negotiations. It's not that kind of battle at all. No, Jesus will speak a word. And the battle is over. It's a word. And God's judgment will be swift. I read this week what Charles Swindoll said. That name won't mean something to everybody, but he's known as a a very gifted Bible teacher. And here's what he said about the battle. I thought this was, well, he said it better than I can say it. So I'm going to read it. He says, let's cut to the chase before anybody on earth can even utter the word Armageddon. The battle will be over. He says, in fact, there will be no war at all, not in the sense that we think of war. There will just be a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered. Once he spoke a word to the howling winds and the heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell silent. Once he spoke a word to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly the deacons fled. The deacons. You you catch that? (laughs) Freudian, Freudian slip. Now he's, that was Swindoll's words. I'm just reading, just reading. Now he speaks a word, one word, and the war is over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit is punctured and still. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they all fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. Just a word. One of my favorite old hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Do you know that hymn? It's in the third stanza. It's talking about Satan and our battle against the adversary. And I'll read part of that stanza. I love how it ends. The prince of darkness grim, it's talking about Satan, 
the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. We don't tremble for Satan. For his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. What's the next line? One little word shall fail him. That's the battle. That's the battle. Now, one just very final thought on this, um, on this great war. In the aftermath of the shooting in Uvalde, I heard people ask, what can we do to stop this kind of evil? And I, I don't know. You know. Maybe there's uh, mental health awareness or laws or safer schools. I'll let somebody else figure out the effectiveness of those things. But I can tell you this. Listen. What can we do about the evil? There is only one solution to evil in this world, and that is the triumphal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to discourage us, but it's to help us to endure in the in-between times. Now let's talk about something happier. Not only is there a great war, but there is a great wedding great wedding. Very quickly, you see this uh, beginning in verse six. He says, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. This is good news. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because notice this, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride had prepared, has prepared herself. And she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. So this is odd. Somebody's getting married. Who's getting married? Jesus is getting married. Now that's odder still, right? Who in the world is Jesus marrying? Well, Jesus is marrying the church. Now, The whole book of Revelation is filled with symbolism, and this is one of those instances, but it's important. It's important symbolism, and it really is reversed symbolism here, and I want you to see that. Generally, when we talk of symbolism, we're using something familiar to explain something profound. Uh, In fact, uh, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that Jesus has seven eyes. I don't believe, though, when we see Jesus that there will be seven eyeballs on his head. I think that says something about his awareness and his omniscience. And so it's a symbol, something we're familiar with. An eyeball tells us about something that is profound, the awareness of Christ. But here, the symbol is reversed. When the Bible talks about the relationship between Jesus and the church, Jesus and his people, he says... It's a marriage. Now, he's not saying that it's a marriage sort of like the marriages we have. Now, actually, he's saying it the other way around. (laughs) He's saying that our marriages are sort of like the relationship between Christ and his people. Uh, We spent a a long time in the book of Ephesians this uh, this last year. And one of the things we saw in chapter 5 is that there's a passage on marriage. Or at least we say there's a passage on marriage about a husband and a wife and a man and a woman. But when you read the passage, it's almost awkward because it'll say something about a husband and a wife here. 
And, and then it'll, it'll interject something about Christ in his church. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And I, I tell you, as a, as a pastor, it's, it's even been a little bit frustrating. It, I, I want to thank Paul, just stick with the point. I mean, you're mixing all this stuff together. Stick with the point. Just give us some marriage words, some marriage wisdom. And then and, and cover Jesus in another part. And, but he just keeps mixing it together. But then he says something, and this is the verse that we preachers usually skip. In Ephesians 5.32, he says, this mystery is profound. But I'm not talking, I am talking, rather. He says, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. The passage in Ephesians 5 is not about husband-wife marriage, and then he alludes to Christ in the church. No, it's about Christ in the church. And it's a reverse symbol. Our relationship, my relationship with my wife ought to, ought to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ and the church. So what is this marriage, and, and what does it teach us? What's, what's the point of, of all of this? Well, we have to understand, first of all, that marriage was the single greatest celebration uh, that would ever happen. It was the biggest social event that would happen in biblical times. Uh, It was uh, much more elaborate today. Uh, Dads complain, right, about how elaborate weddings have have become. And I have three daughters, none yet married, and I'm scared to death, right? Right? And if you'd like to make a low-interest loan, I I think we should go ahead and start working on the terms. Um, But the truth is, they were more elaborate in biblical times, don't tell my daughters. And they lasted longer. It wasn't one meal, it was a whole week sometimes worth of meals. And there were three different phases to a Hebrew wedding. And I'll go through these just quickly. There was the betrothal. That's when the, uh, the two were really joined in a contractual agreement. It it wasn't generally made between the man and the woman. It was made between the parents. I do like that part of this. And, um, and the parents oftentimes when the kids were very young, very young would, would betroth their child to the other. There was a betrothal and it was a legally binding thing. It, a, a betrothal, if it was broken, that was the same as getting a divorce. It was, it, it was a betrothal. It it, it, it was this commitment, this solid commitment that was contractually made between these two who would eventually be married. Many years, many, many years sometimes before uh, the wedding. And then there was the presentation. So this is all the stuff leading up to the actual ceremony, the presentation. Uh, it'd be festivities, it'd last several days, it'd be parties and dinners every night. And it's a very elaborate thing in that culture. And then there would be the ceremony. That was the most important thing. There'd be an exchange of vows. Uh, and this is um, uh, when, when you were married. It made it official, as it makes it official today. And, and there would be a meal, and this would be the greatest of the meals of that whole week-long celebration. And you'd celebrate that the two families have come together. It was even more than just a man and woman are married. It was that, it was that God had provided, and it was a celebration, and the families are coming together. It was a, a very big deal. Well, here he's comparing, he's using that picture, and he's, and he's talking about our relationship with God, and he's giving us something to look forward to. So let me just go through this. Let's go through those three parts one more time. First of all, there's the betrothal. The betrothal is when you're connected with, with the one you will marry. We are betrothed to Christ because we're his children. Well, we're his wife, so to speak, as the church. Now, when did the betrothal happen? 
When were we contractually connected to Christ? Well, there are a lot of ways you can answer that question. You could say it happened in, e- in eternity past. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, when, when Christ, uh, when God said, I, I, will, I will send Christ to die for the sins of the people so that they can have a right relationship with me. And, and, and when he made that possible, that was the betrothal in a sense. But you could also say the betrothal happened not in eternity past, but you could say it happened at the crucifixion and the resurrection when Christ actually paid the price for our sins and made it possible that we could have a right relationship with God. We think about John three sixteen uh, that God loved us so much that whoever would believe in him can have eternal life. But we could also say the betrothal happened when we repented of our sin and we put our trust in Christ. Uh, for me, it was 1985. I I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I I recognized that I was hopeless apart from Christ, that I was lost in my sins, and that I not only was headed to hell, but I deserved it. I was going where I deserved to go. My only hope was what Jesus had done on the cross, and I trusted that. I turned from my sins. God saved me. In one sense, that was my betrothal. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the betrothal asks us the question, have you been betrothed? Has there been a time when you've put your trust in Christ? Understanding that was your only hope. Repented of your sins, followed him as Lord. Now the second part of the wedding, again, presentation. Uh, It's interesting, the Bible says that Jesus is coming back for his bride. Uh, John 14, 3, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And and, and so there's this coming back, that Jesus will come back for his bride. I believe that refers to something we call the rapture, when, when Jesus will come and he'll take all those who are believers in him at the time, and he'll take him up, and there'll be great celebration in heaven. That's the presentation, the presentation. It's interesting, in Revelation nineteen seven we read, it says that the bride has prepared herself for the groom. We're to prepare ourselves for for the, for the presentation. We're to, pre- to prepare ourselves for, for Christ to come and get us. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Are you obeying Christ? Are you serving Christ? Are you speaking the gospel of Christ? Are we prepared? And then finally, there is the ceremony. Revelation 21.2, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is a beautiful picture of this ceremony He says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. You think about a wedding. There's so much anticipation. A couple, they're engaged in our modern context, and they're looking forward to the day they're getting married. They're preparing themselves. Uh, They're picking out China. They're uh, booking a a venue. They're uh, getting pre-marriage counseling from a pastor. They're they're, they're getting ready. They're talking to their friends. They're having showers. They're all these things. They're getting ready. They're getting ready. The anticipation, the anticipation. And we ought to have that same anticipation today because one day soon there's going to be a great wedding feast. And this will be the greatest celebration in all of history where we will be permanently and completely united to Christ. And we will celebrate 
this new union that we will for always and forever be with Christ. And what a celebration it will be, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we look forward to. And how do we face the hard times today? How do we, how do we process the evil that's happening around us? We look forward to the day that we'll be married with Christ. We look forward to this, to this celebration that is in our future. That's how we live in the in-between times. I'm out of time, but I want to I just want to read two more verses to you. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, there's a, there's a passage that refers to this. It almost seems out of place until you fit all of the pieces together. Listen to what Paul says, verse 2. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. What does that mean? Paul says to the Church at court, the troubled church, Christians that weren't very faithful in their, in their following of the Lord. He says, listen, I, 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 I was hoping that you could be presented to Christ as this pure virgin. Meaning, I, I wanted you to be anticipating, anticipating the day that you would be so united to Christ. That, you, that, it, would, that it would change how you live today. He says, that's what, I'm jealous for you. I, that's, that's the goal. I want you to live every day knowing that you're one day closer to this great celebration, this great union. And then he says in the next verse, but I fear, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your minds may be seduced from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. He said to the church at Corinth, he says, you're not doing a good job living between the resurrection and the return. Because just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, you have forgotten the wedding. You have forgotten the wedding supper of the lamb. He says, live for that day. That's how you live in the in-between times. Head bowed, eyes closed, let me pray. Father, I pray first of all for those who are not in Christ today, for those who have not responded to the gospel message, trusted in you for salvation. I pray today, right here, in this room, in this time, in this prayer, in this next song, that they will put their trust in Christ, lead them, tear down barriers that might prevent them from coming to you. Father, I pray that they will trust you right now for their salvation. And Father, I pray for those of us who are just struggling to live between the resurrection and the return. Oh, Father, help us to keep our focus on the wedding day. Let us live with anticipation and to prepare ourselves for that glorious celebration. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.